I'd like just to take a moment to quickly report on my fairly recent trip to the Southern Hemisphere and particularly to be in Sydney. Wendy and I were there from the beginning of October till the beginning of January, uh, a three-month trip predominantly to be with Peter Brooks, who was for seven years the pastor here, went out to 50 people in a small church in Sydney to become their pastor and lead it together with Steve Brading. And I'm happy to report that we took that church away for a church camp while we were there, and there were 200 now in that church. And uh, they're just planning now an evening congregation, believing that they're going to keep on blessing and growing in the Sydney area. There are other friends of ours from here who are now there, like Miles and Kate Simmons. They led a jazz night on one of our first nights there and put on a tremendous uh, show and filled the place. They're really going for it, gathering crowds. And while we were there also, we gathered the leaders from the so-called Pacific Rim churches that Pete helps to serve. That means three churches within Australia. That's a church plant in Brisbane, which we also visited, a church in Perth, and three in New Zealand. Uh, We also went to New Zealand, where the three churches gathered to a camp. We had a tremendous time with them, uh, worship being led by uh, Matt, who used to be here with his wife, Leslie, and their little child now. It was great to see um, many from CCK kind of scattered around the various places. And also to that Pacific Rim Leaders event, we had uh, Steve and Midge Smith from the church in Worthing, the New Frontiers Church, who are planting a church there in the Philippines. Uh, We also are in Cambodia. We also had a young church represented from the Philippines and their leadership. And lastly, uh, Tom and Julie Eaton, who used to lead the student work here, are now planting a church in Nagoya, Japan, which is quite a long way, uh, back up into the North Hemisphere, but within that circle as we see it now with Pete's responsibility. And it was so good to see Tom and Julie both at the leaders thing. And then towards the end of our time there, uh, Pete and I went up to Nagoya, flew up to Seoul, Korea, and then across to Nagoya and met with that church plant, which is an international nucleus being added to by Japanese people who are beginning to find their way in. It was uh, great fun to be there, wonderful to fellowship with Tom and Julie, stay in their home and with their little blonde children who kind of stand out in Japan and speak beautiful Japanese uh, so fluently as they're rushing around the church building on the Sunday with little Japanese children and they're just speaking so freely while Tom and Julie work hard at tenses and uh, vocabulary. And Tom can happily stand in the meeting, give the announcements and the welcome. He tells me he's preached twice in Japanese, which he says took him hours to prepare. And since he still works for five days a week, Monday to Friday, a firm called TurboCam, which is, uh, belongs to a phenomenal Christian businessman uh, who said, look, you open up a branch there, I'll pay you whatever. Even if you lose, I'll keep paying, I'll put you in uh, there. So for three years, they made a loss, and this last year, they actually made a profit. And so actually, he's quite busy at work as well. And uh, Simon, who was with us here, has also gone and joined the TurboCam firm as well as joined Tom in the church. So yeah, they're under a lot of pressure. I want to encourage you, please, please pray 
for Tom and Julie. It's very tough for them. Uh, it's not just a two-week visit. We love people doing short-term mission. It's great. And South Africa is very attractive. They all speak English. Uh, but Japan is hugely challenging, as is indeed St. Petersburg, where Dave Henson and his wife have just gone to plunge themselves into the Russian culture. And when I was a few weeks ago with the Surrey and London weekend, a couple stood on the platform who were going to Istanbul to go and learn to speak Turkish and start. We're seeing people now penetrate into other language groups, other cultures with the gospel. We're breaking out on every side. And one of the thrilling things about being with Tom and Julie was actually the very first meeting I did was at a a church where the pastor, probably the best-known pastor in the city, hosted a conference for leaders, some 50 leaders, including 20 pastors from Nagoya, And uh, I was invited to speak, and we had a good time together, I think. And at the end of the day, he came to me and presented me with an invitation to come back in February of next year and speak to a national conference. And uh, he said, we would love you to preach on the grace of God. And to be honest, it's a kind of formal culture, and it tends to turn churches a bit legal. And uh, he loved the message of grace He said, if you'll come back, we'll gather right across the nation, over 500 pastors from all over Japan, and we will translate your book, God's Lavish Grace, into Japanese so that you can preach and then you can have the book amongst us. What a tremendous privilege that will be. And praise God for Tom and Julie who are building a beachhead into that nation. Uh, Do pray for them, and also you'll see them when they come back for Mobilize and the big conference It's hosted here in Brighton in July together on a mission. The leaders and mobilized conference overlapping. We shall have a superb time. They will come all the way from Japan. They'll come from New Zealand. They'll come from Australia. They'll come from Scotland and Newcastle. And those coming from Scotland and Newcastle will complain to me, why is it held in Brighton? It could be held in Birmingham. And I said, oh, Brighton is such a great place uh, to come to. But for you, dear friends, you go around the corner. So do book in, as the video invites you to do. And this time you've got a very real reason for doing so, because uh, last year we had only Mark Driscoll, but this year, wait for it, we have none other than Joel Virgo speaking. So, any of you mobilized age group or who qualify for leading Please, please book in, come and stand with Joel as he makes this exciting step onto the main platform there. Be there to support and pray and stand alongside. And I don't know how long we'll be able to host this in Brighton, but while we can, let's get there. It's right on your doorstep. Don't forget, it's cheaper to book in before the end of February than all that money you saved, you can put in the gift there. Okay, so don't forget, and let's be there for this tremendous... God has given us such blessing. I'd love to show you a picture on the, on, on the screen that shows you the 50 or 60 nations we are now into in New Frontiers. And to show you the 200 and about 30 churches in this country now as we've spread right across the nation. We are on world mission. We're on mission in the UK. to started in Dublin and Belfast as well as across the country and indeed around the world. So we'll celebrate that together. Please be there. Okay? If you'd like to, would you turn with me to 1 Kings and chapter 
18. First Kings and chapter 18. If you worship here, if you have done it the last few years, I have occasionally uh, been on this platform and taken a series on Elijah. It goes back a while since I started it. Um, but it's interesting that Elijah's experience was also spread over quite a period of time. Elijah came initially and spoke to the king. He confronted a nation that had lost its way. It had tragically lost its way. It was supposed to be a very, very special nation. They were God's chosen people. God had spoken to Abraham, their forefather, and made him exclusive, phenomenal promises. He said, I want to bless the whole world. The way I'm going to do that, Abraham, is I'm going to bless you and your family so that through your descendants, your nation, your people, and then particularly the Messiah that comes from those people, I will ultimately bless every nation, the whole world. That's what I'm going to do. And so Israel, you are my special people. You're the light of the world. You're peculiarly belong to me. I'm revealing myself to you like no other nation. And they had this high privilege of coming to Sinai, seeing the skies open up, clouds of fire and smoke and thunder and a trumpet that two million people heard and the voice of God called them, spoke to them, said, you're my son. He spoke to them very intimately. He said, you're my bride. It's like I'm married to you. You're my very special people. And when they were led by great leaders, by like Moses and Joshua and ultimately King David, they really understood who they were. And David taught them these majestic psalms that they sang as a people, celebrating God, celebrating Zion, celebrating that God is with us. We are here for the nations. As you look at the psalms, you'll see, wow, that's who they knew they were. But tragically, Following David and Solomon, you'll read in the preceding chapters of seven kings that came and went over only 58 years from Solomon to King Ahab. Only 58 years, seven kings. They desperately lost their way. They just lost out completely. They, they forgot who they were. They forgot why they were on the planet. They ceased to represent God and enjoy God. What happened was that they'd come into the land having had God supply them with manna on the journey, miraculously feeding them. But having come into the land, they began to say, well, what do the people here do? Well, there are other gods here. The Baal and the Asherah, there are other gods. These people know how to cultivate. We've never cultivated. We just picked up manna. We were slaves before that. What do we know about this world? Well, these people know about this world. Let's embrace their gods. And tragically, little by little, king after king yielded more ground until it came to King Ahab, where by this time, this nation that is supposed to be the light of the world, under Ahab's rule and Jezebel, his wife in particular, it was now illegal to worship Israel's God. He had changed the law to make true followers of God marginalized, hidden away, irrelevant. But God, of course, is still in charge, and Elijah was sent to confront Ahab, and his word was this, unless you change, God's going to act. And he actually said, it won't rain until I say so. 
phenomenal statement. I will stop the rain. I will close the... I will, God is going to capture your attention. God is going to bring you down. And when I started this series in November 07, I actually said maybe it was like praying, God, break up the banks. Be like God pulling the plug on the banking system and causing us as a nation, not an agricultural nation like Israel was, but a nation depending on economy to suddenly find, hey, we're, we're falling apart. What on earth's going on? I said, it would be like praying that kind of a prayer. And for Elijah, you know, some three years slipped on. It's a year and a half since I made that statement. And as we've looked at our nation, and we've seen, like Joel said from Psalm 107, God can turn a flourishing place into what looks like a desert. And we've been looking a little at how Elijah lived through those desert conditions. And now that season is coming to an end in our story and Ahab is going to be further confronted by Elijah. That's the background. I'm just going to read with you in 1 Kings 18 from the NASB. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe. In Samaria, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now, Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we'll find grass and keep the horses and the mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? He said to him, It is I. Go, say to your master, Behold, Elijah. He said, what sin have I committed that you're giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. And when they said he's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. Now you're saying, go. Say to your master, behold Elijah. It'll come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you where I don't know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he can't find you, he'll kill me. Though I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? Now you're saying, go, say to your master, behold Elijah, he'll kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand I will surely show myself to him today so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him and Ahab went to meet Elijah and when Ahab saw Elijah Ahab said to him is this you you troubler of Israel he said I've not troubled Israel 
that you and your father's house have because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel, brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate or limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Holy Spirit, we honor your presence here. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We are those who break bread to celebrate your sacrificial death, your atoning, loving work for us. We thank you for your holy, zealous commitment to speak to us. And we invite you to be our teacher tonight. Please come and speak to us by your spirit, through your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our story, which initially started uh, some months ago with uh, a little introduction, namely, now Elijah. No background, no history, no story of his childhood. You're just suddenly confronted by this rock-like figure, unyielding, coming from the presence of God, now Elijah. And having confronted, he withdrew. He's secretly hidden away from view and went through some of the experiences we looked at earlier on. But now God is ready to start speaking again. It's as though this period of humbling is over, this period, this three-year period of testing is finished, and God is going to show mercy. The wonderful thing about the Bible is that it repeatedly says that God will not over-test his people. He won't drive it so there's no end to it. Lamentations chapter 3 says this, For the Lord will not reject forever. If he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. These are still his people. He's still going to bring them through. He's going to show them mercy. He's going to speak again. And so it's interesting for us to see that it's God who initiates this. I want us just to notice briefly as we go on through the journey, it's not Elijah's initiative. It's not Elijah saying, I want to have another go. Please let me go. I think I can, I can make it this time. Can I go and preach? Please can I go? Will you, I'm going. I'll speak. And you will be with me, won't you? I'm trusting you to be with me. If I step out. No, no, it's not like that actually. It's not Elijah initiating. It's God who says, I am now going to act. It's not actually for Elijah to get ahead of God. We find in the Bible a few characters try doing that, Moses and others. They get ahead of God. They're not very successful. Elijah's responsibility was to be before God. God was acting. God was moving. God had closed the heavens till he's ready to open them again. Elijah is his instrument, his mouthpiece, and Elijah's responsibility is to be before God. When he's facing Obadiah, and Obadiah says, you'll probably disappear. We won't be able to find you again. You'll sort of come and go. We don't know how to find God. We don't know how to find you. Don't you realize you put my life in danger by speaking to me? Elijah's just solid. He says, 
I will see him today. You just feel you're meeting such authority. You're meeting somebody, to be honest, who is so submissive to God that it's like you're meeting God. He's truly prophetic. Nor has he been idle while this testing time's gone on. We've read the stories of how he was told, go to the brook and drink the water there, and, and, and ravens will feed you. That was his first step of faith. And you find these wonderful stories that says, God said to him, arise and go. And it doesn't say, Elijah said, but why? No, it says, Elijah arose and went. Repeatedly says that. This man is carving out a life of total obedience, just doing what God says, responding to God's initiative. So when he stands before people, he speaks with frightening authority. Because he's living in this relationship. He's not wondering, will God be with me if I really stretch out? If I cry for fire to come from heaven, I wonder. No, no, it's not like that. He's sent by God. God will be with him. The the church is a prophetic community, dear friends. And more and more, we want to be like that, don't we? We want to be looking like people who've come from the presence of God. We're not coming thinking, what's the climate? What's the feel? Maybe we could suggest. Maybe we could change our message a bit. Maybe we could appeal. No, no, no. The true prophetic church comes from the presence of God and speaks with authority. That's the type that we have in Elijah, having come through his trials, through his tests. Now, Ahab, in confronting Elijah, is actually confronting the God behind Elijah. It's the same when Pharaoh is confronted by Moses. It's like I'm speaking to God, actually. It's like when the early church broke out on the day of Pentecost. You thought, wow, these people, where do they get this boldness? They're unlearned fishermen. How can they speak like that? This guy's not been to any college. Who is this Peter? Fisherman from the north. But he spoke so authoritatively. And down through church history, there have been times when suddenly there's been a breakout of people who know God. They're not trying religion. They know God. So here's Elijah as a wonderful illustration of this lifestyle set before us. Now notice the second thing is he's earned the title, You Troubler of Israel. Is that you? You Troubler of Israel. It's like you're the problem, Elijah. He's not the problem at all. But that is again a feature of what it's like when the church begins to be the church. When it begins to come out and be authentic and genuinely submissive to God and genuinely expecting God to do what he promised to do and really speak, really be his voice to the generation. Happened with Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an authentic prophet. He listened to God. And so when he spoke in his day, when the nation had drifted so far that God said, right, there's going to be judgment, and there's going to be some terrible judgment now. And Jeremiah, the authentic prophet, kept saying, just yield, this city's going to be taken out. Jerusalem will fall. And they said, no, nah, it will never fall. We've got the temple. God's always been with us. He said, it will fall. No, no, the temple's secure. It's God's temple. It will fall. They said, you treasonous man. You're not loyal to God's people. And they threw him in prison. Well, he's like a troublemaker, but actually he's just the authentic voice. And the authentic voice, dear friends, when the nation is really drifting away, will sound like troublemakers. It just sounds like that. It's not because we want to make trouble, it's because we want to shed light. 
want to say, this is the truth. This is the truth as God has spoken it. This is the truth that we bow before. It's the truth we're trying to live by. We're sharing it, but it looks like trouble. And we've got to be ready for that in our university life, in our schools, the workplace. The one who lives the righteous life will seem like, ah, you're a troublemaker. It's interesting, the early apostles, as they went out on their early missions, they hit this kind of comeback too. I was fascinated to notice in Acts 17, where Paul begins to speak, and there's so many people following him, and people turning to him, and and responding to his message, you find that there are people who start turning against him, and speaking against him. And Acts, in chapter 17, says, these men who have turned the world upside down, that's the old King James, and actually finds its way back into the new ESV. The NIV says, these men who have caused trouble all over the world. These, these Christians, these troublemakers, these guys who are causing trouble have turned up here. They're causing trouble everywhere. The, he, the Greek word that's used is anastato. And it means kind of revolutionary. John Stott, in his commentary in Acts, says it's the same word that's used in Acts 21 and verse 38 when it talks about that Egyptian terrorist who tried to start a revolt. you find that reference later in Acts. So this word has got all kinds of danger attached to it, like a terrorist, like someone stirring up trouble, revolutionary overtones. Now, it's interesting, if you look in the passage and what Paul did, he doesn't say he made trouble at all. It just says he went. And see, these are some of the words you'll find earlier in that passage. He's, he's challenged in verse 6 with being called a troublemaker. In verses 2 and 3, these are the things that Paul had done before he's called a troublemaker. These are the verbs that are used. He reasoned. He explained. He gave evidence, it says in the NASB, NIV, says proving, proclaiming, persuading. He's just shedding light. He's being sweetly reasonable. But the backlash, you troublemaker. There's a, there's a vested interest that hates the light. The Bible says God is light. We heard that over the breaking of bread, really. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And this is the testimony that light came into the world, but men preferred darkness to light because their deeds were evil. They don't want the light. The light breaks in. They don't want light. They want to stay in the darkness. It's a bit like uh, in a party, like some teenagers in an empty house where parents have gone away and you're just there and the drink's going around and people are having a high old time and gradually couples start making their way up the stairs, finding a bedroom, another couple finding a bedroom, finding a bedroom and suddenly someone goes in, opens the door, turns the light on. What are you doing, you fool? I'm a fool, I turn the light on. Men prefer darkness to light. We don't want light. Don't lie unless you want truth and finding something. We prefer to be in the dark, thank you. So the offer of light is seen as trouble, although actually it's the answer. No, we'd rather be in the dark, thank you. We'd rather resist the light. We'd rather hide from the light. We don't light. That's the most thing that you need. You desperately need light. 
but bringing light is seen as causing trouble. And the words that describe the people who charged Paul, interesting, the words describing him, just looking at the verbs in the sentences, reasoning, explaining, giving evidence, persuading, of the others it says, jealous, wicked men, mob, uproar, riot. That's the reaction that Paul gets as truth is told. You are trouble. That's how the church is often regarded these days. We are hearing all the time an appeal for toleration. We tolerate everything except people who feel they know something. We are, we, we will not, we'll tolerate everything except people who say, we have a message about light. Recently, I guess you will have seen it, there was uh, an advertising campaign on the buses in London. And uh, with the effrontery to say, there is probably no God. You saw this a few weeks back? On the buses in London, the double-deckers, there's a, probably no God. So don't worry, go and enjoy yourself. When I thought, I thought, I thought boy, if ever there was an oxymoron, <laughs> there is no God, so don't worry. I think, that terrifies me that there's no God. Go and enjoy? Enjoy? What you mean enjoy the people who are committing suicide, the increase in drugs, the breakdown of society, the wondering what on earth to do? Just go and enjoy. Enjoy what? Well, enjoy escapism. Enjoy the dark. Enjoy don't looking. Not look. No, no. That is such foolishness. There is probably no God. Well, that means there's no hope. That means there's no possible redemption. That means we just found ourselves on the planet. Like this is on the news this morning that some scientist has just said, out in the universe there are probably hundreds of Earths like ours where life is developing. But as the philosophers have said, but there's no body behind it. There's no one out there. There's no one who cares. So all the things we treasure like beautiful music, and you listen to a beautiful symphony or concerto and your heart soars, and you think, wow, that is magnificent. Or you look at a classical painting, or you take photographs of some incredible sunset, or you feel, I demand justice. How can this happen in Zimbabwe? I, this is wrong. This should not happen. We'll fight for it. We'll give money to help the poor. We feel things like justice, but listen, there's no God. It doesn't really matter. Go and enjoy, what? Nothing? Why would I care about justice? Why would I admire beautiful music? Why would I think that's stunning? What about romance and love? No, there's nothing. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. It's utter foolishness. Kill yourself. The message that there's hope and light and life Troublemaker? No, life offerer. Hope provider. Gospel declarer. Troublemaker. No, no, no. We are supposed to be salt and light. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt's lost its flavor, then it's good for nothing. If we haven't got a clear message, tread it underfoot. Turn the light off. No, we're light. We know the answer. Elijah stood before God. Knew God, saw miracles, experienced God like we do. 
He knew what he was saying was true. He wasn't just trying to get plaudits. He knew it was true. Such kind of declarations will meet with hostility. You mean in the workplace you spoke to someone about Jesus? I heard this week of a five-year-old who said to his friend at school, can I pray with you? And he's in trouble. You prayed. You said you could pray to God. How dare you say that? The Archbishop of York has written a really powerful article about what is going on in England where 70% still say that they are Christian, but we're not allowed to share our faith. What's going on in this nation? Troublemakers. No, light sharers. Well, this is the welcome that Ahab was given. And this is the backdrop against which we work. Paul says to believers in Colossae, let your speech always be with grace or gracious. The commentators don't know how to divide those Greek words, but, well, it's with grace, but it's got to be gracious anyway. Always prepare to give a reason for the hope that's within you, seasoned with salt. Let your conversation have a tang to it. Let it arrest the corruption. That's what salt did. It stopped the corruption. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Speak when you can to stop the corrupting trend. Yes, we may be called troublemakers. Elijah, you troublemaker. No, he's the hope of the nation. Let's move on to our third point. It's time to make up your mind. It's time to make up your mind, to make your choice. Actually, it's very beautiful, I think. I only noticed in the text as I was reading it through and working on it this week that it says Elijah drew near to the people. It's a thing I'd not noticed before. I always thought of this natural arena by Mount Carmel that he'd be shouting to this great crowd. It says he drew near to them. Yeah, he spoke harshly of the Baal priests. He dealt with them ruthlessly. Rather like Jesus spoke harshly, who too? Only the religious crooks. He said, you won't enter in and you won't let anybody else enter in. You vipers. You whited sepulchres. Yeah, Jesus was harsh on religion. He hated religion. You are, have every right. If you're inquiring here tonight, feel free to hate religion. We hate it too. We don't stand for religion here. We're not here for religion. We're here for the truth as it is in Christ. And Jesus was ruthless with the religious. He was very tender and compassionate to the people. The religious were dismissive of the people. When Peter preached, the religious said, these unlearned fishermen, they're not preachers. They haven't been to our colleges. We haven't trained them. How can they stand up and speak? But they spoke with such boldness because they knew the truth. So they didn't like that. And one time a blind man was healed. Jesus healed him. And, he's, and they said, who healed you? He said, well, he did. And you get a long conversation we haven't time to look at. But they, they, they said, oh, you know nothing. You're untaught. He said, well, I don't know. I was blind. Now I see. It's like, think about it, guys. Yeah, but you don't come from our schools. Religion. Yuck. So Elijah had no time for the prophets of Baal. But he had a lot of time for the people who drew near to the people. 
God's mercy. We've been looking as a church for some weeks at the story of Jonah. God's mercy. Never has there been someone who came so near as Jesus. Never has been someone who so stood before the presence of God. The second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, face to face with God through countless ages, throughout eternity, come from God. Talk about come near. He's born in a stable, grew up in a carpenter's home, was perceived to be just the child of Joseph and Mary. How near can God get? He came so near, and not just near generally, but near to the ordinary people. So much so that he offended the religious. They said, wine bibber, drunken, glutton. Because he ate and drank and sat and laughed and joked and told jokes and danced at weddings and came very near. John could say, we handled and touched. Mary could say, I wept all over his feet. I anointed him with oil and wiped his feet. With my, I kissed his feet. They got so near to God. It's wonderful to know a God who comes near into your family, into your home, into your job, into the tough things of life, and you've got God with you. So with you. Emmanuel, with us. He comes near to us. Maybe you don't yet know him. He was, he's willing to come near to you. Tonight, we'd love you to just say, why don't you come right in? We can testify to a day when he came right in. So near. So he's with us every day. We can just start our day and say, thank you, Jesus. You're with me. He drew near. And then he made this call. How long are you going to limp is the root word limp. It means we don't walk steady. You've got two feet on two different places. How long are you going to limp between two opinions? How long are you going to worship Baal and worship God? You see, as a nation, they hadn't totally abandoned God. Their very identity is Israel. They're people of God. Their history. They can't answer who the Jewish nation were apart from their God. The deliverance from Egypt, their crossing of the Red Sea, their entering the land. They knew all that history. They knew the Psalms which they sang week in and week out in their past. They knew this stuff. It's still with them. Even Ahab's sons. Fascinating. If you look at his sons, you'll find them later in the book of Kings. You stumble on them. It says when he died, his son took over as king. And his name was Ahaziah. So Ahab called his son Yahweh has grasped. Yahweh is the name of God. He had a second son who comes up later in Kings, Jehoram. Yahweh is exalted. And so as he's having these children, he's honoring the true God. But now he has said, no, don't worship him. He's, he's halting between two, and he would have been typical of a nation that had lost its way, a divided heart. We're not supposed to follow two masters. Actually, bring that right into the New Testament, you'll find Jesus said you can't do it. You cannot serve two masters. It's impossible to do it. It won't work. He doesn't say it's difficult. He says you can't do it. 
Here's Jesus' words. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and then he illustrates that principle by saying you cannot serve God and money. Now, he could have illustrated from some other principles, but he's talking about two masters, and then he uses the illustration, you cannot serve God and money. You can't serve them both. So Jesus is using money as a kind of God. We don't think of money as God. You don't think of serving money. You might spend it, you might save it. You don't serve it. But Jesus said it's like it becomes a God to you. It's like you begin to serve it. You begin to fear it in these days. Just be very careful. What does money offer? Well, it offers some very kind of interesting things. Money offers you this. I'll care for you. I'll provide for you. I'll free you from anxiety. I'll give you fulfillment. I'll give you enjoyment. I'll provide. I'll care for you. I'll give you fulfillment. You think, wait a minute, where have I heard that before? Who else offers that? Of course, God says, I will care for you. I'll provide for you. Don't be anxious. Your heavenly Father knows. And so money is coming with the same offer. And Jesus says, you can't serve both. You just can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible to do that. And so we find that when a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and it says Jesus loved him. There's something about him. There was, there was an attractiveness in him. He's asking good questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get into the kingdom? He's asking very good questions. And Jesus just enunciates some principles. He says, I've done those things. And Jesus sees right into his soul. He says, sell what you've got, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the guy is found out in a moment. He's, I can't do that. I cannot do that. I've given too much devotion there. I, I can't make that step. And the man goes away sad because he's already got a God whom he can't walk away from. You might say, as you see him come from the crowd, didn't you get to Jesus? You look disappointed? You know, I, I got to Jesus. But I couldn't respond. Then there's a wonderful different story. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, he's a crook and just taking money off for himself, getting very rich on other people's taxes. And it says, Jesus saw him and said, I want to come to your home. And this man is so different to him, suddenly the penetrating light cuts right through and although he is very rich and very crooked, he says, I will give back what I have stolen. I will repay. And Jesus celebrates. And he says, salvation has come to this house. We need to understand that Jesus isn't just saying, get a good attitude to money, that's salvation. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is knowing Jesus is Lord and is all that he promised he would be. Therefore, all this other stuff is very secondary. We're not just appealing about money. We're appealing about who's the Lord of my life. And that's going to have its outworking. So Zacchaeus, Jesus proclaims salvation has come to this house. The only way you get salvation is a revelation of Jesus, who he is and what he can do. 
transformed the man's life. But it's not only money. Let me just remind you of another Bible verse. It says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful. Now, he's talking against the backdrop of the prohibitions that Jewish lifestyle had imposed. And he said, no, no, all, I, we're not under law anymore. Paul is speaking as an ex-Jew, now Christian, and saying that approach to God of trying to keep the old laws is irrelevant. It doesn't count anymore. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. You, you don't have to keep the food laws. And then he says this, all things are lawful. That is an extraordinary thing about the liberty of the Christian. All things are lawful. But then he says this, not everything's profitable. And he actually says this, I will not be mastered by anything. I won't be mastered. That's what Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. And so Paul is saying, oh, everything's, everything's lawful. I, I, I'd like a good job. I'd like a nice house. I'd like a nice car. I'd like a nice wife or husband. I'd like, I'd like good education for my kids. Well, it's all lawful. It's not like Christians step out of the world and have, have created a weird, old-fashioned, irrelevant, out-of-touch life. That's not, life. That's not Christianity. Christianity says it's God's world. We feel very at home in it. All things are lawful. Now, all things are lawful, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to come under anything's control. I can keep it on my open hand, but it's not going to possess me. Otherwise, I'm in danger of what was perfectly lawful becoming a real idol to me, and I can't serve two gods. You see, Paul had stepped up from that Jewish background. So now... Hey, somebody said, can you eat pork and still go to heaven? Yeah, eat pork, you get to heaven quicker. <laughs> Think about it, all right. But you see, Paul goes on in this verse, he says, but the body's not made for food. That's what the next verse says. The fact that we're now free doesn't mean I now just become a glutton. I can now eat, well, yeah, but you're going to be mastered by it? Is it going to now dominate your life? Is that how you show your freedom? You're not free at all. You're getting under the dominance of something. It's the thing, well, I can't go without that. And so Jesus comes and says, I want you to do, well, phew, that's a no-go area, Jesus. That's too important. That, that, that's, that's my job. That's my career. Hey, steady. But, that, but, but he wants you to have all things. Yeah, thank you. And I've got it. And I'm watching out for it. I want you to, well, uh, sorry, Lord. Well, what? You can't serve two masters. I mean, to me, to be with Tom and Julie, tiny church, massive privilege. Massive privilege. Just to be with them. Shining bright eyes. You think, how did you do that? What about your kids' education? Oh, we would go, but there's the kids' education. Yeah? No, I mean the kids' education. Yeah? That's what Tom and Julia said. Uh, yeah? Jesus said, go. But what? 
Jesus said, go. We're, we're off. But what about? Hey, doesn't he know about? Doesn't he have everything in his control? Hasn't he promised he can make everything work together for good? Do we have to say, no, we won't do that, Lord, because, well, look at this. If I do that, I'll lose my car. If I do that, I'll lose my job. If I, hey, who's God around here? That's what Elijah's saying. How long are you going to halt between the two? What matters most? That's the appeal. That's what is being spoken of here. We can't live with non-negotiables. We can't come to God and say, you have it all, but I'm, well, phew, let's be sweetly reasonable, Lord. I do have another God. Jesus is looking for ruthlessness. He says some incredible things. He says, if your eye keeps you out, tear it out. If your hand, chop it off. If your parents let the dead bury their dead. Uh-huh. Jesus, you're amazing. Yeah, I'm about an amazing task. And I'm inviting you. Come with me. It calls for a radical commitment. Yeah, it is revolutionary. But without swords and knives and killing and bombs and fatwas. It's just loving. But truly revolutionary. Beloved, this church is a gang of revolutionaries who says, Jesus, whatever, whatever you say, whatever you say. When I listened to those two going to Istanbul, a couple of months, I tell you, I nearly wept. We're off to Istanbul. Istanbul? Yeah, just a couple. They're going. St. Petersburg, Dave Henson, I've sat and talked to him when he planted the church in Loughborough. Now he's off to St. Petersburg, Russia. Yeah, we're off. Wow. Jesus said this. How can you believe or accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from God alone? It so kind of penetrates your heart, that verse. How can you believe? Lord, give me more faith. How can you believe who accept praise from men and not the praise that comes from God alone? See, Elijah was that kind of guy. He didn't really get any praise from anybody. But he so wanted the praise that came exclusively from God. That was his motive. That's where his heart was set. Paul could say this in 1 Corinthians 4.3, To me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. It's so easy even to be a zealous Christian, but what you most like is some applause, some praise, some well done. If you can tell how it happened, you'd like to put your explanation in quick. So people sit from your point of view because really we love the praise of men. It means so much to us. Jesus says, how can you believe who live on that? You've got another God. So this penetrates deeply, really. But Jesus modeled a completely different lifestyle. Jesus never, never got two focuses. He always kept very, very clear His passion was to please the Father. That was it. I always do what pleases him. 
even from a little boy, about 12, went down to the temple. And they said, what are you doing? He said, don't you understand? I must be about my father's business. From a child, he understood what my father wants. He carried that all the way to Gethsemane, all the way to the cross. Under the shadow of the cross, he's, he's trembling in Gethsemane. If it's possible, can this cup pass from me? Nevertheless, your will be done. For this purpose came I to this hour. See, Jesus was so focused. He only had one intent. That was to please the Father. This is my meat, he said, to do the will of him who sent me, to finish this work, to save the lost, to hang upon a cross. When he got very close to it, he trembled in Gethsemane. When he got close to the agony of it, the loneliness of it, the withdrawing of the presence of his Father, the sleeping of his disciples, the walking out into total loneliness, he trembled. But he said, this is why I came to this hour. This is my meat. For him, there's no alternative. There's nothing else appealing to him. There's no other voice saying, what about? Take this in. No, no, no. Here's our focused Savior. He modeled sonship for us. He came down from heaven having lived eternally as the Son of the Father, always submissive within the Godhead, equal and yet submissive. It's quite plain. The Father sent the Son. He is eternally submissive to the Father. He didn't become submissive when he came. He was submissive. That's how he could be sent. Equal, yet submissive. Living as a son with the Father, eternally enjoying the Father, delighting in the Father, coming to a world that's been lied to. He said, be as God's yourself. Make up your own rules. Don't believe God. And he came and showed us what it's like to be a son. He modeled it. You came from heaven to show the way. He's modeled sonship. It's not that he lived by loads of rules. He said, I always please him. That's the heart of being a Christian. We always please him. It's not a lot of rules. You can learn objective rules. Oh, Christians don't do that. They don't go here. They don't take part in that. You can, leave. You, you can learn rules and not love God. It's not about what are we permitted to or not permitted. It's about how can I please him? How can I get to know him better? How can I enjoy him more? Jesus came and showed us the way right through to the cross. For this purpose... I came to this hour for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. We're his joy. He wants a bride that's like him. Tom couldn't go to Japan without having a wife that's like him. Let's go. Yeah, okay. Jesus wants his church to be like him. Let's go and do the Father's will. Okay. We want to be like you. Dear friends, let's not limp between two things. Well, I would be like you, and I love being near you, and I, I really love the atmosphere, but you can't touch this, Lord. I'm sorry, this is mine. No, God is inviting you to be ruthless. He's saying, I can give you the answer. I can bring the rain back. 
God's willing to shine upon you, smile upon you, order things for you, but let him be God. Don't say, no, I'll be God. I'll pick, I'll choose here, not there. I know how to get through these meetings. I know when to raise my hands. I can sing the songs. It's from the heart that we say, Lord, you have my life. Be greatly glorified in my life. Believers, let's live that way. Perhaps you're not yet a believer that you could say, yeah, I know Jesus like you do. You say, no, I'm coming. That's why I'm coming. I want to find out. If you're not yet a Christian, just want to invite you to listen to Phil for a few moments. He just take five minutes to speak to you and show you how you can step into this life of enjoying God. Thank you, Phil.